1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Finding joy in the often overlooked things that surround us has been a lifelong passion for Roman Mars. His podcast, 99% Invisible, has had over 400 million downloads. And now, Roman Mars has written a book called The 99% Invisible City. He joins us today on City Lights to discuss this field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. First, it's our fall member drive and... We're asking you to become WABE members. Your sustaining gift of $15 a month allows us to tell Atlanta's stories. Maybe you didn't know this, but 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta area, and that's why we need your help. Please become a sustaining member by calling 678 Five five three ninety ninety, or visit wabe.org slash donate. I'm joined this hour by WABE music contributor and friend of the show, Scott Stewart.
2: Hi, Lois. It is so great to be here. We have a very special incentive for you to donate right now. For every donation that we get in this hour of City Lights, Trees Atlanta will plant a tree right here in Metro Atlanta. Since 1985, Trees Atlanta has planted and distributed over 140,000 trees. This is the only time during City Lights that we're partnering with Trees Atlanta for the fall member drive. So please give right now at wabe.org donate. Or you can make your donation by calling 678-553-9090. Thanks so much.
1: My name is William Ransom, and I live in Decatur. I have kind of a, a personal history with public radio because my parents listened to it all the time. So it became sort of the theme of our, our lives, the, the background. And it was just a natural to continue that as I've grown and been more able financially to help support things that are important to me. That is always at the forefront. Wow the theme of your life. Thank you, Will Ransom, and thank you for everything you do to bring glorious music free to the Atlanta community. Many of you are familiar with Will Ransom and the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta, the fantastic concerts they provide free to the community. We appreciate Will's contributions, Will's testimonial there. And because we know WABE is important to you, won't you please consider joining us as a monthly sustainer? You know what amount feels right. Many listeners donate $15 a month. Maybe you can afford $100 a month. That would make you a cornerstone member of WABE. It only takes a few minutes when you contribute at WABE.org or call 678-553-9090. Scott, I know Will is a longtime friend and colleague of yours as well.
2: One of my favorites colleagues of all time and a musical powerhouse, uh, one of the most important musical treasures I think in Atlanta. So important to all of us. And when you think about WABE, you might want to think about how important the station is to Metro Atlanta. WABE keeps you informed and in touch with everything that happens in this exciting, dynamic city. WABE is not really a luxury, it's essential. And to keep this essential programming on WABE, we need your support. As a member, you make a difference because donations are our greatest source of funding. Please support programming that matters to you. Contribute now at WABE.org or you can call us at 678-553-9090.
0: With your new sustaining donation of $15 a month, we'd like to send you the WABE Pet Combo as our way of saying thank you. It includes a red aluminum pet tag with an iHeart WABE engraving and a matching red collapsible drinking bowl for your dog or cat. Please make your first ever donation this fall at $15 a month or a single gift of $180 at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you.
1: Your gift to WABE right now means one tree planted. The Trees Atlanta partnership is only in today's edition of City Light, so please donate now. Trees Atlanta restores urban forests and green spaces and plants trees where they're needed most. How about your first ever gift to WABE? Please go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks. Many public radio listeners are familiar with Roman Mars, creator and host of the podcast 99% Invisible. The podcast has had 400 million plus downloads. Now, there's a book called The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. The book was co-written by podcast producer Kurt Colstead, with the host Roman Mars. He's with us now via Zoom. Roman, welcome to City Life.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real joy to be here.
1: 99% Invisible looks at urban design and architecture in a way that isn't technical. It's wonderfully accessible and easy to understand. And I'm not alone when I tell you your stories are often from an endearingly quirky perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when, when did you first develop interests in the subjects of architecture and urban design?
3: Well I've been a public radio reporter for about 20 years and you know the the subject material really came to me when I was um, working at WBEZ in Chicago. I took this have this architecture boat tour where you go on the river, the Chicago River. You go on a a big boat and a docent tells you stories about the buildings. And the way they told the stories um, made me realize that you could probably get away with this on the radio. You could probably tell interesting stories about buildings you couldn't see and, and get away with it. And that's when it really clicked in me that This was a show that could be done. But I've always had an interest in just the hidden stories behind everything, whether it's, you know, science and nature or, you know, human-built things as as well.
1: Well, that is the key to the book, the podcast's window into your mind. (laughs) Chapter one is titled Inconspicuous. What are just a few of the examples of hidden design in this section.
3: Well, the inconspicuous section is about things that are probably so small and everyday and mundane that you fail to notice them. So, you know, the first chapter is about this uh, spray painted graffiti, that's official graffiti that's on the ground, that is put there because if people are excavating or, or doing things underneath the street, um, it's a its a little guide to what are the tubes and, and channels and, and <laughs> lines underneath it. And it was, you know, this, this sort of official graffiti was necessitated um, by a huge explosion that happened in 1976 in Los Angeles when somebody inadvertently cut through a, a petroleum line. And since then, it was codified into a system. Over time, it's been sort of, you know, refined. And so, if you see those spray paint markings on on corners and and on streets, if you see it, it's and it's orange. It's it's a telecommunications line. If you see it, it's red. It's a it's an electrical line. And that's one of the things I've always been fascinated by. So I kind of always knew that. that that would be the first chapter of the book. There's also things called Knox boxes, which are these little safes that if you look, it's around eye level of, you know, commercial buildings, you'll see these tiny little boxes that have a, you know, key to open them. And that usually has a key to the, um, to the building itself. And so, uh, those are there so that emergency personnel, they have a master skeleton key that can open up a lot of those boxes and they can, break into the to the building without you know having to actually break down the door they can use a key to get into it and so um, those are other things that that I kind of love those are the inconspicuous style of urban design that I'm interested in
1: you're right that the Knox box has gone the way of Kleenex where um, you know what was once a brand name is now a generic reference and I, I, I love this acronym DIRT
3: yeah <laughs> right would you
1: would you unpack the dirt roman
3: yeah I, I will i have to i have to like actually check the 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 term again because it's it's it was a funny one to me it was the damage information reporting tool um it is the it is the way that you uh report if you actually manage to cut through one of those lines <laughs> uh, if you're excavating in the street or you're doing it in private property yeah
1: This sort of information is exactly what makes your reporting and your storytelling so ideal for public radio listeners. But how much research on your part do these subjects take?
3: I mean, the book is like a culmination of 10 years of the books, I mean, of the podcast research. And then in addition to that, the co-author, co-author, uh, Kirk Holstead, um, he's been, an, uh, you know, de- design writer and urban design writer for a really long time. And so um, I don't even know. I couldn't even count how many uh, interviews are represented and, uh, you know, all the people we've worked with on the show, uh, and, uh, like it is, a, it is a, man, it's a sort of mammoth undertaking. Uh, the bibliography is uh, extensive. If you ever want to do a deep dive on any one of these subjects, it is one of the most annotated and uh, resourced and referenced books that I've ever encountered.
1: Please tell us about what you call cellular biology. <laughs>
3: So the chapter on cellular biology has to do with cell phone towers and the camouflage of cell phone towers. So, I mean, what, one of the things that I think is actually kind of cool that I didn't know until, until uh, we were working on the book is that, um, actually cell towers are named after the fact that the coverage area of a, of a transmitter, if you look at it from above, it looks like the cells on a Petri dish. And that's why they call them cell towers. And so it covers a little cell area and one of the things we were interested in is as as cell towers were, you know, becoming ubiquitous objects, um, they there was a need, a a push from the public to hide them, you know, to make them not look, um, you know, the, the metal industrial things that they are. And sometimes turn them into um, things that look like trees, and so most of the section is about the camouflage of those uh, towers, and you know the and turning them into little pine trees and <laughs> turning them into palm trees, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and ways to look out for those. And one of the things that's that's funny about them is they they look you know, they don't really look like trees, (laughs) you know, they're, they're pretty, they're not so, they're not so good at camouflaging themselves, but the more branches they have to blend in a little bit more, you know, the more expensive they are, the heavier they are. And so therefore, um, you know, it's, it's a real expense to, to hide them. But maybe it's just that I, you know, I don't notice the, um, the really well camouflaged ones. (laughs) So that's why I think that the, that the ones that are uh, not camouflaged are, are stand out
1: radio producer, and podcast host, Roman Mars. His new book is The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Let's return to my conversation with the popular radio producer and podcast host, Roman Mars. We're talking about his new book, The 99% Invisible City. What's the story of Lovelocks? So, Lovelocks
3: started as a tradition. Um, where there was a, um, there's a tragic story of, you know, someone declaring their love and going off to, to war and, and, and then finding another sweetheart when he, when he came back. And, um, and so what the tradition started was that people would etch their initials inside of a padlock and and put it on a, um, on a bridge And there are bridges all over Europe in particular that are just laden with love locks. And so much so that it it actually upsets the structural integrity of the bridge itself. And so they have to clip them off and they have to find other avenues like they'll put up little... you know, like kind of like signs beside the the bridge and uh, make it so that they they have little grates so that people can put their love locks there. Um, It's a tradition that that a lot of people love, but a lot of municipalities do not love.
1: (laughs) Obviously. Are there really love locks along the Great Wall of China?
3: Yeah, yeah, there are. They put up little chains in their love locks right there, too. Yeah.
1: Your stories cover so many cities. I mean, going from the Great Wall of China to Seattle, Canberra, Australia, Toronto, you mentioned Chicago, and then smaller cities, Paris, <laughs> truly globetrotting with these various references. Yeah. Roman- have you traveled to all of the places you mentioned?
3: I have not traveled to all the places that I've mentioned. in fact i I have not traveled all that much in my life. I mainly talk to people in in these places uh, to get that because I just been a person who's worked so much of my life and i I never had as much opportunity and one of the things about the the city guide, I mean one of the reasons why it is the way it is is like especially in this time period where we can't travel very much um the the book is a travel guide to whatever city you're in for this you know for you to look deeply and closely at your neighborhood because you can't go to some of these far-flung places but through you know looking at the manhole cover like on in in um in your neighborhood we can talk about the ones in japan that are these beautiful um you know, like exaltations and the wonders of municipal water systems. And, you know, you can look at your city grid and we can talk to you about um, Barcelona and all the places, you know, the decisions they made to make these super blocks and divide them up. And so we use it as this travel guide to go sort of expand out by staying in your neighborhood. And um, Mm -hmm. that's what I, that's the way I've kind of traveled myself.
1: Barcelona was an example you gave of a hot mess when it came to design <laughs> originally I know people flock there now it's obviously shaken off that reputation
3: oh for sure but it just was not you know the the grid the grids of the superblocks were just not made for a you know human scale and and so you know they began to figure out ways to correct it and to sort of change the traffic around it and And so the, you know, in the neighborhoods that were sort of previously kind of hemmed in, um, they expanded them out and and made them better.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned grids. My husband and I are originally from Chicago. I know exactly the architectural boat ride that you (laughs) took and it is inspiring, it's marvelous. But when we moved down to Atlanta, I got lost so often <laughs> and I yes. was so frustrated because children in Chicago at a very young age learn directions the lake is east it never moves that's east and then you know everything and and if you make a wrong turn if you're driving you go around the block well down here they don't have blocks and <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the you know the circuitous route, and and then I learned, well, some of it was because of the topography and not wanting to cut down trees, that a grid grid was not imposed here.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and you know, uh, Chicago had the bad luck of sort of being burned to the ground, and then they built up from there. And because of that, they really like focused on making the grid part of its usability. And, and so, uh, it had that moment, you know, Atlanta also burned the ground. They did not take that same opportunity. And, and, um, and so, but the, also the flat topography of, of Chicago, you're totally right. You can have, you know, uh, the whole, <laughs> the whole thing laid out in grids. You can know exactly. I mean, one of the things I, when I moved to Chicago, I made these, um, flashcards for myself to teach myself the you know what the what the address number was for each street you know so like fullerton is at 2400 north you know and, yes <laughs> and and it was like it was like uh it's it's so regular and so perfect in so many ways that it was uh it's kind of a delight to be in that city to know like how much care went into it and and, and some other cities feel kind of haphazard in, in comparison yeah. of
1: course now with um apps and gps you know all of this i guess is irrelevant you just <laughs> ask your phone and it tells you
3: i know but it's so nice to know where you are i mean that's the thing like the lake did give you that and, and i live in the bay area so like i know that the i'm on the east bay so i know that the bay you know is on the west and, and you know it, it, it i like to know what direction i'm pointing in there's something about my biology that requires that kind of kind of knowledge and so um so yeah it's it's good for me personally
1: roman mars the radio producer and host of the popular podcast 99% invisible his new book is the 99% invisible city we'll be back with roman mars after a short break This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. We're in our fall member drive at WABE and it's the time of year when we do something special, when we take a leap of faith and ask you to support the programming you love. In fact, 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. Please join the tens of thousands of WABE listeners who are members. Make your donation now by calling 678-553-9090 or click the Donate button on WABE.org. I'm Lois Reitzes. Here with you and join this hour by WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart.
2: Hi, Lois. Hi. It's so good to be here. And for everyone listening, if you donate to WABE right now, you will provide a long-term benefit for Atlanta. And that is for every donation that we get this hour of City Lights, Trees Atlanta will plant a tree in Metro Atlanta. This is for anyone who makes a new gift or WABE members can add an additional gift right now to take part in this Trees Atlanta incentive. A number of trees planted during City Lights depends on you. So, even if you've already donated or are a WABE sustaining member, show your support for Trees Atlanta during our 10th anniversary of our partnership with them by making a donation at wabe.org/donate.
0: We know that millions of people listen to public radio every day, but what about the other super fans? Like Jake the Dog, who is such a big fan of public radio that he listens every day.
4: He is part
2: shepherd, part husky, uh, about 65 pounds. He is quite chonky. He listens to NPR a good eight hours a day sometimes.
0: And when his favorite show, All Things Considered, comes on, he sings along with the theme song. (whistles) (laughs) I'm Ari Shapiro, co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. Jake can't support the public radio that he loves, but you can. When you support this station, you ensure that everyone, including Jake, gets to keep enjoying the news that you rely on every day. Make a donation right now. Thanks.
1: Do you hum along to theme songs when shows like City Lights or All Things Considered come on? Be the person that Jake the dog wags a tail at. Yes, and all those wonderful canines across the metro area who listen devotedly. Use those fingers or paws or claws to give us a donation at wabe.org or call 678 seven eight553 9090. It only takes a few minutes to make your donation. You'll make Jake a happy dog. You'll make us very happy knowing we can continue to bring you the programming you enjoy. And think about this show today with our guest, Roman Mars. His book, On the 99% Invisible City, making us aware of All of the glorious things in our surroundings, if we just take a moment to look. Atlanta has many trees. Today we will plant as you continue to donate during City Lights. Scott?
2: There's nothing like public radio. And here in Atlanta, there's nothing like WABE. For just a fraction of what you spend on your cable bill or your cell phone bill, you can help support all of the unique and important programming that you hear on WABE, from City Lights with Lois Reitzes to Closer Look with Rose Scott to Political Breakfast with Dennis O'Hare. Become a sustaining member with a monthly gift of $15 and help ensure that innovative, intelligent programming continues to thrive on WABE. Call 678-553-9090 or make your contribution online at wabe.org. When you give to WABE at $10 a month, we'd like to thank you with our brand new Forever
3: I Love Atlanta 14-ounce mug designed by Atlanta artist, India Nabarro.
1: We wanted to make something fun while staying authentic to our city, of course. So I made sure to include stuff like late night waffles, street art, and nature.
3: To receive the new Forever I Love Atlanta mug, please make your first ever donation this fall at $10 a month or give a single gift of $120. Online at wabe.org donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you.
1: You only have a few more minutes to take part in our partnership with Trees Atlanta today. Remember, your one donation right now plants one tree in Metro Atlanta. Even if you are already a WABE member, perhaps you can consider an additional donation right now to make Atlanta a little greener. To support WABE and Trees Atlanta, please donate now at wabe.org donate or call 678 678- 553-9090. Thanks very much. Now let's return to my conversation with a popular radio producer and podcast host, Roman Mars. We're talking about his new book, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. I learned a new word from this book, vexillology that's
3: right (laughs) that is the study of flags vexillology it's something that I've been kind of obsessed with for a while
1: yeah (laughs) and I must confess that as an Atlantan who grew up in Chicago I thoroughly enjoyed this section will you share the stories about the flags
3: yeah so I didn't know cities had their own flags until I moved to Chicago and you see the Chicago flag everywhere in Chicago. It is a it's a white flag it has two horizontal blue stripes and four six-pointed red stars across the middle and it is on every municipal building it is on the you know shoulders of the police officers it is on the tattoos of the bike messengers it is like it is everywhere and it's this real you know point of Chicago pride and so after i left chicago i I moved back to the bay area and i was looking up the the san francisco flag because i'd never seen it in the previous like eight years i lived in san francisco and uh, I found it to be uh, a very bad flag, <laughs> like it wasn't good to look at. It you was, shamed. Them. I totally shamed them. Um, it has it has it has a few like really cardinal rules of that it breaks in in design. Like for one thing, it has the name of the city on it. It's San Francisco across the bottom. It has kind of a, a a crude drawing of a phoenix on it, and I just didn't like it. And my my assertion was is that a flag that's poorly designed is a flag that's unused and if you made a a a well-designed flag it would become this you know center rallying point the same way that the chicago flag is this center rallying point for all kinds of chicagoans and so it was kind of a call to action for all the cities who haven't really thought about their flags to consider them and and you know and, and the thing was is like even though I was having a lot of fun with you know making fun of ugly flags and, and stuff like that. The main point was I just wanted people to you know to look at their flag and consider it and to you know bring it out and, and, and use it and I think that good design is a way to get people to love their flag, but if they love their ugly flag, more power to them you know like let them, let them have fun with it.
1: <laughs> you actually inspired a grassroots effort ninety nine percent invisible inspired local efforts to change city flags and you must talk about that little city with a p
3: (laughs) pocatello idaho so yes so the at the end of this so this all was um i I did a few episodes about flags and i did this ted talk about flags and that's what really happened so in 2015 i did this ted talk about flags um it was seen you know just over like six million times and it spurred all of these flag redesigns all over the country about 200 is by by our count and um one of them the way i ended the talk was i showed what the north american Vexillological association rated as the worst city flag in north america <laughs> it was the city flag of pocatello idaho um it was kind of um it, it's definitely uh you know i definitely was making fun of them um they took it with such good humor and they were so sweet about it. Um, it turns out that the flag itself is kind of, was a sort of an afterthought. It was really a, you know, a design from the nineties that was a city branding campaign. They didn't have a flag. And so they put it on a flag and said, this is our flag. And so um, it really wasn't designed to be a flag. So it has like a trademark symbol on it, it has like a copyright symbol on it. It's not made to be a flag, but I, you know, I ended the talk with that and everyone laughed and had fun with it. And um, And then, uh, a a few, a little bit later, the, the mayor of Pocatello (laughs) wrote me and said, I hear you don't like my flag. And, uh, and then invited me up and, uh, I went to the different like committee meetings as they were deciding what to, what to do. And they were just, they were the loveliest people. Like they, they just were like, and I met one of the real uh, city leaders, one of the business leaders in the city. And they said, thank goodness we weren't the second worst flag in North America because <laughs> it it wouldn't have been as fun. There wouldn't have been a thing we could do. And we just had this moment where we thought about the city and we tried to make a symbol that made the city better. And they did. They made a beautiful flag that everyone uh, there loves or a lot of people love. I don't know if everyone loves it. And um, and it was just a good, you know you know, like ending to that story.
1: What an impact 99% <laughs> Invisible has. And you even went skateboarding with Edmund Bacon, the great urbanist. He was, was he really 92 when he went skateboarding?
3: He did, he was. I mean, I didn't personally go skateboarding. We had a video of him uh, doing it. So one of the things that I love is, I love when cities design a thing, but then the people decide what is actually they're going to use it for you know like because cities are always this conversation between the people who use it and, and the people who design it and so Love Park was this place in uh, Philadelphia. It was a park that was not used very well it had it had all these sort of concrete slabs and modern forms. It was an extremely comfortable park for you know the, the, you know a person who was looking for a place to lay down or rest. But um, the people who discovered it and did love it were skateboarders in the 1980s. They, in the 1980s and 90s, it became this mecca. It became this place that skateboarders all over the country would come to so they could skate the benches of Love Park. And they would get chased off by the cops. (laughs) They would get, you know, their boards taken away. It was this little war between the skateboarders and the city. And, um, And Edmund Bacon, to his credit, um, he designed it, he designed, he was the sort of master planner for a lot of Philadelphia and, you know, he was, he skateboarded when he was in his nineties in support of the skateboarders, <laughs> you know, like he wanted to show his support and show that you know, even though he did not design it for them, he was happy that they took the design and, and turned it into something that was functional and useful and fun. Um, and you know, it was, it became the park. It probably always should have been, but he could have never anticipated
1: what a fantastic story <laughs> and what an extraordinary man i mean he's sort of the go to guy for a popular book on urban design of cities
3: yeah yeah and he's the father of kevin bacon which is amazing
1: <laughs> yeah and i i have to tell you i interviewed kevin and his brother ahead of a concert they were playing they were coming to atlanta to play and um you know kevin was kind of uncomfortable you could just you could hear him worrying about six degrees of separation (laughs) questions (laughs) and asking about his wife and i just said you're Edmund Bacon's sons. <laughs> and he was so excited to talk about his father, um, as was his brother. It, it was very special.
3: Oh, that's, a, that's adorable. I love that.
1: <laughs> in the chapter on urbanism, you write that a captivating statement made in the built environment by the right activist or artist can be so compelling to the general public that the powers that be are forced to pay attention. Yeah. Would you explain that?
3: Well, so a lot of the time, you know, a city is designed. It's kind of designed from the top down, and I, I think most of the time it's designed with the people in mind. I, I really do think that most city planners are trying to do their best, but they can't anticipate all the things that a city needs or a neighborhood needs. Those things have to be acted on by the people who are there. And one of the ways that I think cities in general all over the US, especially as the city is expanded you know, to the West, um, cities really preference cars and car movement. And so one of the things I see a lot is uh, a lot of you know, sort of interventions and, and you know guerrilla activism of taking back pieces of the street that have been dedicated to cars for a really long time. And so there's, these are often take the form of, you know, in in, in San Francisco, they, we have this thing called parking day, which uh, somebody, you know, feeds the meter for for the rest, for the whole day. And then they, instead of parking a car in that spot, they put in a little tiny park they put down some astroturf or some sod they uh, maybe put up a mini golf course (laughs) they they (laughs) put up some chairs and they reclaim that space because you know using the you know the the systems of the city by you know reserving the meter or paying the meter they have the right to and so when that started happening here it really caused uh city planners to think you know, or the, not really the planners so much, it's just the bureaucrats, you know, people who work the city to sort of think about how to use um, some of the parking space differently. And, and we noticed that there was a lot more um, sort of cafes had expanded out into the parking areas on the street. And, um, it, and especially during the time of uh, the pandemic and COVID when we need more space to be together so that we can be apart and be outside and be safe. And so I've noticed that this this place, the, the the roadway that has been sort of the, you know, the dominion of cars for about a hundred years. I mean, roads were not originally just for cars. They people walked across them, horses were on them, cars were on them, trolley lines were on them. They were a much more dynamic and chaotic place. But then cars came on the scene and became so ubiquitous that we kind of yielded everything to the car. But I I see us kind of taking some stuff back, and that's really led by a lot of this sort of these interventions and activism. And then the city adopts them and tries them out and experiments a little bit, and you know re you know reimagines the city in lots of different ways that you know they maybe not have done had somebody not done something you know to act on it. Mm. Same same thing goes for bike lanes. Like a lot of the original bike lanes, they were just people painted a line, you know, and they uh, and then and those lines got adopted. And so there's a lot of this, you know. I'm really fascinated by the conversation between people and in, in their city, and what they you know come to you know what kind of agreement they come to in the end.
1: Oh, Roman Mars, as a radio and podcast storyteller, you provide eye-opening experiences for our minds and ears. Now we can read about them as well. Thank (laughs) you so very much for joining me.
3: Oh, it was my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the conversation.
1: Roman Mars is the popular radio producer and host of the podcast 99% Invisible. His new book is The 99% Invisible City, A Field Guide to the Hidden World of Everyday Design. The stories and interviews we bring you every day on City Lights are typical of what you expect from public radio. We have the ability to expand your worldview and enrich your life. But to help pay for this programming, we're asking you to make a donation today we rely on listeners like you to chip in because 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. You can do your part now at wabe.org/donate or call 678-553-9090. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Joined this hour by W.A.B.E. music contributor and educator extraordinaire and conductor Scott Stewart. Thanks,
2: Lois. You know, I always tell my students there are three kinds of people in the world, those who can count and those who can't. But There are two reasons to donate right now to WABE. First, your gift will help pay for City Lights, but every donation that we get this hour will also help plant one tree in the Atlanta area. That's because we're partnering with Trees Atlanta. That organization has been challenged by the pandemic, but Trees Atlanta volunteers are slowly returning to plant trees in November. Your one donation in this hour of City Lights means one new tree. It's as simple as that. So please give at wabe.org slash donate. My name is Sharon Goldmacher and I live in Morningside. Listening to WABE these days gives me a sense of calm in what I feel is very turbulent times. On some instances, I feel like it confirms my personal feelings, in other instances, it makes me go, huh, I didn't really think about it that way. And I think, to me, that's the essence of good reporting.
1: Thank you, Sharon. A sense of calm is so important these days, and hard to put a price tag on. When you listen to WABE, you receive trusted fact based reporting, and you also get valuable coverage of the arts and culture. and that's why a donation in any amount makes a difference. $15 a month seems to be a small price to pay for peace of mind. Thank you for making today the day that you join WABE as a member. Just visit wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you.
2: $15 might seem like a small amount, but when you sign up as a monthly sustaining member, that $15 helps pay for daily broadcasts of Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and shows like City Lights. You get a lot for your monthly contribution, and we need that gift right now to keep bringing you all the programs that you count on. $15 a month makes a big impact. We combine it with donations from your fellow listeners who rely on WABE just as much as you do. Public Radio only works with you. Contribute now at WABE.org or call 678-553-9090.
0: As a new sustainer at $20 a month, you can choose the WABE Cycling Combo. It includes a 25-ounce double wall insulated Camelback water bottle and the WABE Bicycle Bell, both featuring the WABE logo. Please make your first ever donation this fall at $20 a month or a single gift of $240 at wabe.org donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks.
1: The Trees Atlanta partnership for today ends as soon as city lights end. So please give now. We started this partnership with Trees Atlanta 10 years ago. And since that time, WABE listeners have donated 16,800 tree seedlings. They were all planted in and around Atlanta helping restore the canopy and making our metro area a healthier place to live. Please be a part of our efforts for 2020 by making your first ever gift at wabe.org donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. Paintings by the Atlanta-based artist Fahamu Peku are in major museums and private collections on several continents. His entire body of visual, literary, and performance art addresses contemporary representation of black masculinity and its interpretation. When Dr. Peku joined me in June. I asked him to read from his poem, Broken Open. Broken,
4: broke and hoping, broke in hoping, broke and hoping, broke, kin hoping, broken, hoping, hoping broken, open, 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 broken, open, open break.
1: Mm. The message and the meaning within that poem is all the more powerful through your use of wordplay and double entendres, certainly fully evident in your 2016 exhibition, Black Matter Lives, as well as more recent artwork. What has been swirling through your mind and heart in recent weeks, about the protests surrounding the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the Black Lives Matter movement?
4: Uh, There's so much that has been going through my mind. I've, like many people, experienced a range of emotions and anxiety, Hope, frustration, joy, laughter, Uh, you know, it's run the gamut, but ultimately, I'm very, very, very much encouraged in the awakening, I think, uh, is probably the most appropriate word, but the awakening that's happening um, around the country. Uh, and around the world, um, as a result of these protests, as a result of this uprising. For me, you know, it's, it's been an interesting thing to see. It's, this is a subject that I've been addressing in my work for over 20 years. And to see so many people now responding and reacting and, and you know, seeking to engage is really encouraging.
1: Well, it's heartening to hear you say that. I saw that you put out a Facebook video to white people who want to unite with the cause. What advice have you been giving to those who reach out to you?
4: You know, I I think that there are so many people, very well-intentioned, who want to know how they can help or what they can do or what position they can take within this moment and you know there's just there's a sort of double-edged feeling that i have around that on one hand it's you know as i said before it's encouraging to see so many people waking up to you know this reality and, and and seeking to engage but on another hand it's equal it's equally frustrating because a lot of what is playing out now a lot of what's, you know, sort of taking center stage is not new. This is not anything that people have not been aware of. And the only way that one can really argue an unawareness is by acknowledging their own sort of willful ignorance around the implications of white supremacy and social injustice and racial disparities that impact uh, non-white communities of of people. And so the the questions uh, that I've received from, you know, from, again, from really well-intentioned people, you know, around what they should be doing, I've, I've found myself responding more so by asking them in turn, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to admit? What are you willing to accept? What are you willing to change? Um, Because I think ultimately, the course uh, that one needs to take to really see the dismantling of these systems that um, uh, pivot us against each other that uh, disproportionately um, impact Black and poor people is the work of self-reflection. Like, you know, we all have to take ownership of the ways in which anti-Blackness has colored our lives and, and inform our thoughts and inform our actions. And it's not enough to just make a donation to one of the many charities. It's not enough to you know, post a statement on your social media page, because the work that needs to be done is deep and complex and complicated. And there's no one who can give you you know, a, a magic pill or a silver bullet that will make this all right. We have to get our hands dirty in this, to to unravel the ways in which anti-Blackness and racism and white supremacy are interwoven into every facet of our lives. Um, And that takes work.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, I think that this makes me wonder about the role of the artist in coming to terms with tragedy. For example, your work, You Are constantly socially engaged with your art in the midst of a protest, where does art fit in?
4: I think art is one of the most powerful vehicles for the types of social change that we are seeking. There's something to be said about the voice of the poet versus the voice of the politician, about the voice of the singer versus, you know, the voice of the, the civic leader or whatever you want to call them. Like, there's a way that art can communicate to us and communicate to our interior spaces that, you know, mere rhetoric cannot convey. And I, and I think that we, we have seen that over the course of these types of uh, civil and social justice movements throughout history. You know, when we think about the civil rights movement, you know, for as long as those campaigns were, were, were going on and you had, you know, quite eloquent speakers and, and representatives who were behind, you know, podiums and pulpits and, you know, I- expressing the frustrations of, of people, but when James Brown started singing I'm Black and I'm Proud, that connected to people in ways that, that go far beyond any
1: speech. The Atlanta-based interdisciplinary performance artist Fahamu Peku. To see examples of his work, you can check out our website at wabe.orgslash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Thanks for listening to members supported WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.